Hello, my name's David Yarrow. Welcome to my podcast, In Focus. Over the last few years, I've traveled fairly relentlessly around the world, following my passion of photography. These are the stories behind the photographs. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about my picture, Mankind, which was taken around Christmas 2014 in the world's newest country, South Sudan. And I don't think any other picture has played a more important role in my career evolution. Whenever I visit one of our galleries around the world, and I think there are 26 galleries that represent us in the Americas, in Europe, and in the Far East as well. And sometimes I'm having a coffee in those galleries with the gallery owner and a new aspiring artist comes in to show his or her new work. I look at the face of the gallery owner ahead of that meeting with the potential new artist. And normally the gallery owners, their faces are very telling because they are not hugely enthusiastic. They're just going to go through a chore. And at the end of that rather perfunctory 15 minutes, 20 minutes with the new artist, they will turn around and say, Thank you, but no thank you. So why is there that inertia? It is because most galleries in the world, the senior ones, the ones that uh, make decent money, by which I mean galleries that are turning over more than two or three million a year rather than your kind of here today, gone tomorrow gallery in a high street in the UK, they have a limited stable of artists, just in the same way that sports management agents have a limited number of sports stars they can look after, or football teams have a limited number of players in their squad. From the gallery owner's perspective, better the devil you know, and why allocate time, space, and resource to some artists that no one's heard of before? So therefore, getting into a gallery, particularly one that has got a reputation, is a difficult challenge for the vast majority of artists, including myself, because it's chicken and egg, what came first. A gallery, by and large, only wants to represent artists that are well-known, and how do you get well-known if you don't have any gallery representation? Throughout the period from about 2010 to 2013, I wrestled with that dilemma. We tried with probably the most senior gallery owner for photographers in America. He turned me down about four or five times with those lines, thank you, but no thank you. So I realized that what I needed to do was take a big picture. I look where I am now, where we don't approach galleries, galleries approach us and we turn them down. So those six years or 72 months has seen the balance of power move in our favor. And the genesis of this was my one shot in South Sudan, Mankind. The first time I got to know about what was going on in the world's newest country, a deeply troubled country because of a civil war that was going on between the two biggest tribes in South Sudan was through a guy called Levison Wood who did a series called Walk the Nile. The Nile's a series of swamps and lakes here, so we're sticking as close as we can to the river in the forests in Savannah. This is what I've been dreaming of, living wild, discovering nature's secrets. 
Levison and I both were affiliated to a conservation business called Tusk. And we were in a lineup and I was standing next to Levison and I didn't know there was going to be a royal visit. And before I knew we were in this lineup and the Duke of Edinburgh came along the line and I didn't have a tie and everyone else was very smart. He came up to me and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't have a tie. He said, well, why don't you go and get one? I said, well, it's 6.30 in the evening, sir, and the tie shops are closed. And he went, oh, well, you should have thought about that beforehand. And that was the end of our conversation. <laughs> and Levison afterwards was laughing so much that then we became very good friends. So I learned always, wherever I go now, to take a tie in my back pocket in case I meet the Duke of Edinburgh. So Levison and I got talking, and I said, show me some pictures. And he showed me this picture that he'd taken with his mobile phone of a Dinka camp along the Nile. And what I found compelling within there was that there was a serenity, but also there were things defying gravity. I always like things that defy gravity. It probably goes back to my days as a sports photographer. It's a, a little bit of a contradiction in a way in that I want my photographs to have a calmness about them, which is why we don't go in for predation. But equally, I quite like to have a degree of interest and a degree of movement. The movement and the interest in the phone pictures that he showed me was that he was shooting into the light, into the evening light, and the evening light was just lighting up smoke everywhere. So it's a bit like those pictures you see on a winter's evening in New York and you're going up Park Avenue or Madison Avenue and you see the steam coming out of the sewer systems at night with the yellow taxis and whatever. I'd always think that's sort of quintessential New York. Here you just had the smoke of a thousand fires and amidst the smoke you had these cattle horns. It grabbed my attention, it held my attention because I thought it was evocative and I hadn't seen it before. And there was something so kind of biblical, elemental about it. Those pictures could have been taken a thousand years ago. And the horns are big, beautiful, and slightly spooky. And this was the cradle of mankind. This is not far from where mankind is meant to have started in parts of Ethiopia. And I thought, bloody hell, mate, if you can take that with your mobile phone when you're not even a photographer, I've got to go. The Dinka are the tallest people in the world, empirically, by, I think, about an inch. I think the average male is about six foot two, six foot three high, which is why the NBA has had a long relationship with South Sudan. There's quite a lot of South Sudanese basketball players. They live a fairly nomadic life, the Dinka. Their currency is cattle. And some of their prized cattle can be worth an awful lot of money. The Civil War really revolved around skirmishes for land and cattle. So one tribe would make a little invasion of the other tribe's land and maybe nick a cow. The other one would return and nick three cows. Then there'd be retaliation and someone would get shot. And then there'd be re-retaliation and five people would get shot. And before you knew it, you're in a civil war. It made it very dangerous in 2012, 2013. The value of life is quite cheap up there. In order for me to go up to Ords where the Dinka cattle camps are, 
I had to do a lot of work in terms of staying safe and making sure that I had the right protection. We ended up using a group from Uganda that were recommended to me by Levison. They know the area well. They go up there quite a bit and they know where it's safe and what isn't safe. The police don't really run the places like that. It's the tribal chiefs that run it. You've got to win over the tribal chiefs. It's just a question of making sure that you have contacted the chiefs in all the villages you go through just to make sure there's no trouble. I interviewed the team from Uganda and I told them what I was looking to get, which was a scene with depth, which showed these enormous cattle camps and the cattle camps in the evening. Because in the evening, what happens is the cattle who've been off grazing come back to the cattle camps and the children, there's no schools, what the children do during the day is they pile all the dung up into little pyramids and then they set fire to the dung. And this is what creates this kind of Dante's Inferno look of the cattle camps in the evening because all these fires are burning. People sometimes when they see this, they think it's dust, it's not a smoke. And the reason they set the dung on fire is to keep the mosquitoes off the cattle. As always, I look at the pictures of others and see what they've got right and what they've got wrong. And I felt that there was something missing, that maybe there was an opportunity because the topography around the Nile is extremely flat and there's not much vegetation either. So getting a position of raised elevation is very, very tough. And if you don't have a position of raised elevation, how can you convey depth in a picture? Because manifestly, if you're at the same height as the Dinka and they're going to be taller than you, you're not going to see past the first row of people and cattle if you're photographing from six feet. So in the very same way that I have a problem photographing an orca or a shark from eight feet because it's too high, because I'm photographing at six foot, I'm not going to be able to get depth in my picture unless I was to be able to find a cattle camp on a hill, but there aren't any hills there or unless the cows were up a tree, but the cows don't go up trees. So before I left London, the last thing on my list of things that I asked the Ugandans to bring was the biggest ladder they could find. Getting 250 miles north of the capital on a shocking road system where roads collapse with the rainfall the whole time, or there could be skirmishes and you can hear gunfire. It was always going to be quite a challenge in itself, but taking a ladder, that was a component they weren't expecting. I spent Christmas Day in Juba in South Sudan. On Boxing Day, we moved north. Uh, you're going about 20 miles an hour, and there are guns everywhere. My uh, security detail cost a thousand pounds a day, probably, and my accommodation cost a dollar a day and our food cost about a dollar a day. So if you put the food and your accommodation every day, they were one five hundredth of what it costs to protect you, which is an interesting statistic. I don't think that I was ever under any threat. They have no issue with a British person. The civil war, as the name suggests, were between the two tribes, but you can always get caught in gunfire or whatever. I did some smart things before I left London. 
because I knew the Dinka were all about cattle. They're incredibly proud of their cattle and their horns. They're a bit like the Texas Longhorn cows. The horns are just a little bit more impressive. And I've been told that to win the crowd, and it is always about winning the crowd, you bring four things. You bring money. Of course you bring money. Of course you bring dollars. You bring Bic razors because they love razors, Bic barrows because they like to write, and paper. But the real trick, my special X Factor trick, was to get people in the office beforehand to print off a thousand pictures of Scottish Highland cows. They just thought that was the craziest thing they'd ever seen in their life because a Scottish woolly, fluffy, fat Highland coo is a world removed from their cows. And as we were going through the country, almost like giving out political leaflets, I'd give out pictures of Scottish cows and the kids would laugh their heads off and go screaming to find their mum and show a picture of a very fat cow. That was a smart thing to do. I didn't know quite where the big cattle camps were, and they move around a bit as well. And I felt that perhaps some of the other photographers hadn't been far enough north. It is a slog, it is a slog up there. You can sometimes spend a day going 50 miles because roads have got washed away or it's, it's difficult to go the route you want to go because of danger. But eventually we got to a place called Yirol, Y-I-R-O-L. It is not as if there's a Starbucks and a Burger King and a Taco Bell. You go through a village and all you see are men drinking and men with guns. I was given an introduction to the Norwegian aid organization, which do a lot of good work in, in Africa. And they introduced me to the local police force and the local police force introduced me to the mayor. This is a city of about 30, 40,000 people. Renowned for its big wrestling, South Sudan do a lot of wrestling matches and you get huge crowds, the whole village turns out to watch the wrestling. I think towards the end of the first day, most of the officialdom there knew that I was there. There was a small hotel and the police agreed to take me to this cattle camp the next day, which was on a bank on a tributary to the Nile. On the way up, I kept on finding Dinka camps of 200 people or 100 people, or 20 people, where they'd do exactly the same thing. The cows would go off and graze, and then they'd burn the dung at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then the cows would come back. And they would say, is this good? Is this good? And I'd go, no, it's not good. It's okay for a start, but what I'm looking for is a cattle camp of 10,000 people. I suddenly realized that in order to get to where this cattle camp was, which looked vast. I was gonna have to wade across the Nile or the tributary of the Nile up to about my chest. And there's crocodiles in there. And I thought, oh my goodness, I am gonna have to cross here. And you could see the crocs. But if I didn't get across, then there was gonna be a long way to go for no picture. So not being anything like as brave as I want to be. I uh, paid off eight people to form a circle around me and we went across the Nile. So if anywhere the croc tried to come, there was gonna be someone else in the way of the croc's mouth. The problem was that that was just to do a reconnaissance in the morning and I knew it was an evening shot. And as soon as I got to this place, I knew the potential. I, let, I had the ladder, we took the ladder across. I knew where I could shoot. I knew my light. 
I thought this was going to be brilliant, but I knew I also had to cross the Nile three more times, once to get back, and then once for the real shoot later on that day, and then to get back afterwards when it was going to be dark. The last one, when it was dark, I think that was the one when I really did go the quickest. It's a very surreal thing crossing the Nile after you've taken a picture like that up to your chest when there's crocodiles around and so many guns. When I got back that night to the hotel, obviously exhausted, filthy, dirty, and put the picture onto my computer, I knew I'd got a great picture. I'd done some smart things in the composition of the picture. You get kids on these things called wars, which is spelled W-O-R, which is basically a tree that's dead, where they can stand on top of the tree and look out for potential attacking forces from the other tribes. So I got one of the kids to do that, and that certainly gave a compositional balance to what we did. Once I took the picture, I spent the night in, in the hotel, and I didn't really feel I could do any better than that, and I wanted to get home. And luckily, there is a small flight that goes from Ural to Juba, the capital. And rather than spending three days on the road, you can get back in 45 minutes. The plane looks like it's tied up with string, and the safety record is shocking. But I thought, what the hell, I've just crossed the Nile and there's been crocs in it. I'm damned if I'm going back in that road. Let's just get on the plane. The plane was fine, landed in Juba a few hours later as in Nairobi. And I then sent it to the picture editor of the Daily Telegraph. And he went, oh my goodness. And they put it over two pages, right quite early in the paper. That was sort of page four and five. And that was really within 72 hours of me taking it. I then went from Nairobi with the file to Los Angeles. And we worked on the picture. The aperture and the lens was always, remember, was f11, which means that there's a lot of depth of field. So there's an awful lot of things to get in. They printed it up for me in LA, and then I flew to the same gallery owner that had turned me down four or five times and said, thank you, but no thank you. And rather ironically, because he's quite a diminutive man, in order to look at my picture that was taken with me on top of a ladder, he then got on a ladder to look down on my picture. And I remember him looking at it for a good minute. And he then said, thank you and thank you, and we'll represent you now going forward. And that was probably the tipping point of my career. And it all happened within about a week. The only thing about that picture was it was taken in 2014. And I'm very proud to work with a Nikon uh, cameras and lenses. They would be the first to admit that since 2014, their cameras, in terms of their ability to capture finite detail and information, has improved. Maybe I've got better as a photographer as well, got more confident. I want to go back there and uh, I'll make sure the, the 16 people surrounding me as they go through the Nile rather than eight. So that's it for this episode of my podcast. My name's David Yarrow. If you haven't already subscribed to the In Focus podcast, please do. And please also leave any reviews that you'd like to make. If you want to see any of the photographs that we've been talking about, do look online at David Yarrow Photography. 
This is a co-production between the team of David Yarrow Photography, led by Alex Ames, and Message Heard. Produced by Jake Warren and Sandra Ferrari, with mixing, editing, and original theme music by Matt Huxley. Thank you again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>